0: The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they managed to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Today, we're going to be delving into identity and profession, and so... And I think for this particular episode, we're going to focus on an article by Rod Benson. Rod Benson is a columnist for the SF Gate, I think that's a San Francisco paper. He's a fine artist and also a former professional basketball player for the NBA D League and the Korean Basketball League. He's previously written for Yahoo Sports and Slam Magazine and is a graduate of UC Berkeley. So Rod Benson, um, he's I've, I read a couple of his articles. They're really he's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually want to reach out to him. I don't get back to us because nobody <laughs> does, but that's okay. Everyone's busy. Um, but I really like the way he writes because I feel like he's got the former player angle. Yeah. But he really understands the mental health angle. I mean, I think from his personal perspective, maybe, but also just in general, like you as a clinician, I think you mm-hmm. hear him right. and You're like, oh, this guy gets it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. Which is really cool because that's not always the case, nor should we expect it to always be the case, as we've talked about with members of the sports media, you know, whether it's fair for us to put expectations on grasp on the right. mental health side. Yep. So he did an article called, uh, Don't Clown Kyrie Irving's Mental Health Days. I Wish I'd Done the Same During My Pro Hoops Career. Pro Hoops Career, excuse me. So we talked about Kyrie Irving in the, in the last episode. If anyone wants to go check out the episode that we did previously on, on interviews and fan behavior, we talked about Kyrie Irving and how we're not sure he's the best spo- spokesperson mm-hmm. for the mental health day movement uh, in pro sports. But so, he, you know, Rob Benson wrote this article about Kyrie Irving, uh, really about just mental health days in general, wishing he had taken them. And He talks about his career and he reflects on some other players. And he says, quote, there are two aspects of mental health in sports that are still under discussed. How to, one is how to retire at uh, how retired athletes adjust to life after pro sports, and how too many current athletes only connect their mental health to their performance and nothing else. We have talked about both those things in a lot of depth in different episodes because they definitely were coming over again. Mm-hmm. This also relates to Lamarcus Aldridge, who recently retired and, and opened up about his struggles to accept that because I think he had signed with the Nets. They're going on a run now. He had to retire for physical reasons. I think. Mm-hmm. And now I think heart. he's dealing with some heart, um, some mental health things in terms of missing out and adjustment and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. we're talking about identity and profession and why it's risky in general to to tie identity to one thing, whether that's profession or otherwise, because in case that thing is taken away. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I want to touch on one thing that he said, John, and then kick it to you to get your thoughts on this because he talked about why with sports it almost even goes kind of goes beyond that because uh, you may have to change who you are too, which was I never seen it written this way and it mm-hmm. really stuck, uh, stood out. And he wrote that um, about about James Wiseman and what it would take for him to find success in the NBA. James Wiseman's a a rookie for the Golden State Warriors, second pick in the draft this past year. He detailed um, Rob Benson actually detailed how he, Rob Benson, had literally had to literally alter his personality and become a different person entirely to achieve his fullest basketball potential. And he says, "quote What I didn't really get into was how crazy that process actually was. I didn't just become a different person. I became more violent and less vulnerable." I kicked it wherever my teammates wanted to hang out, often in strip clubs and those D-League days, even if they weren't the types of places that I enjoyed. There are so many ways uh, one can go from looking the part to just being the part. And so it brings up this interesting point about how people have to chameleon to their job or workplace culture at times to their detriment. It's not just in sports. I think this is an extreme example. I think it happens for other people too. So what do you think about that, like a chameleon? Process of having to do this kind of change who you are.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this in other in other episodes too about you know what brings you fortune or what brings you. as You think you in that moment isn't necessarily always what you long term, right? Mm-hmm. So for athletics, we've talked about this a lot that like a lot of athletes see emotion as vulnerability and any type of vulnerability is a weakness, yeah. right? And can't show any of those different things and aggression, right? Like being overly aggressive or being more aggressive or those are both sort of seen positive qualities. Not we can we've talked about that beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, and you sort of do have to you you hear athletes talk about this like they embody this new person of who they are but what we know as clinicians are believing yourself to be something different than what you actually are there's massive the word is dissonance or like disagreement within your your head and that over a prolonged period of time is really difficult and then for the retirement piece when you leave the game now you're in like a state of crisis. You've lost your all your support. You've lost your performance where you were feeling all of this stuff coming crumbling down and then you're left with that like, well, who am I, right? Mm-hmm. Because like to your point, all of your... Sense of self has been tied to your performance and your or your ability to do that, and you've and you've learned that 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 requires me to be aggressive, and not be vulnerable. And so then when you leave, those are the things you've become, and you try you try to incorporate your daily life or your new life with those qualities. Mm-hmm. It's problematic because those don't those don't translate well to real life outside of outside of the sport.
0: Yeah, and I would think I think there's a lot of other people listening who aren't NBA basketball players who can relate to some of the stuff he's saying with, with regard to like work at a certain place. There is an element of like having to adapt mm-hmm. uh, and chameleon yourself to the to the workplace culture of the people there in a way that may not be I think the jargony term would be ego syntonic, mm-hmm. right? That where it's like it's not it's not in line with who you are and your personality and your value interests. Mm-hmm. It's entirely necessary just so that you keep your job or you're able to succeed and support yourself. Right. But it really isn't in line with who you want to be or are. And I think that's what he's talking about. I think a lot of people have that struggle in a workplace where it's like, I think of like, especially I'm trying to think of most like um, we, we work with a lot of young guys. So I, I've worked with quite a few young guys who are like very much emotionally intelligent and emotionally available, but not, you know, aggressive alpha males in a good way. Right. That's Mm -hmm. a compliment. And when they're around, if they're athletes and they're around these sports teams, which tend to have a lot of like self-conscious male, aggressive, mm-hmm. like don't show weakness kind of style athletes, they struggle sometimes because it's like they they get caught in this like, am, do I have to do I have to like be fake and change who I am? Mm-hmm. And what are the co- What are the you know, what's the cost benefit analysis of that? And that is is a bit of a mind, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it brings them through this process of feeling like they have to fake it in a certain way to survive in that environment. And sometimes I think they almost kind of do from a sports perspective. It's really hard to just not adapt a little bit to that because that isn't the environment you're in. I don't know. What do you think about that? I'm rambling. A little yeah. Bit, no.
1: I think, but I think that's true. And I think that the, the, the thing that happens is that sometimes if you if you embody something that isn't you for long enough, it becomes you, yes. right? Because you continue to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that happens a lot, and especially in like work environments or team environments, there's a lot of like groupthink that goes into it. Like if, if if you feel like you're outside of what the common belief is, you feel isolated. You don't want to feel isolated, and so you incorporate. There's a, a famous um, experiment that uh and for psychology i'm sure you've heard of it beforehand but there was an entire class uh like entire lecture of like i think like two or three hundred people i might be getting the numbers wrong um and everybody in the class was in on it except for one person and a professor basically said okay here are three lines one of them is different than the other one um and which one is it and basically went through the entire class and everybody said one line was shorter than the other one when clearly It wasn't, Mm -hmm. and it came time for that one person who didn't know, and they agreed with the rest of the class versus what they were actually looking at, and I think that that happens a lot, and if you continue to be in an environment where you kind of forget about yourself and continue to embody what you think is appropriate, it becomes really problematic because you are what you practice and what what you constantly feed yourself in your head, and I think... To this point, I think that's why it is really hard for athletes to transition out of it because I think they do embody, especially in male athletics, this like masculine, egotistical mm-hmm. type of mindset. Yeah. Um, and then when they when they leave, it's really hard to shake that because they've been practicing it for I think how long was he in the league for? Like seventeen years or while. something like yeah. that, like yep. a long, long, yep. long,
0: long time um and, and he had to go to multiple cultures i mean he played right. uh, overseas so it's yeah like that's a whole different ball game right yeah.
1: exactly so it's it's definitely a big it's a it's a huge it's a huge topic and i think that a lot of athletes who i highly recommend anyone really uh can relate to a lot of the things that he's saying in that article
0: yeah and then it you know it's interesting because it almost like these types of things can happen very slowly i mean we right. see this with people where it's like the I think the I don't know what the psychological term is, but the the effect we've talked about where like if you gain a bunch of weight and someone and you look in the mirror every day, you're not going to notice it necessarily. Whereas someone who hasn't seen you in a few weeks or a couple months, especially, mm-hmm. is going to spot that out right away. because yep. they don't have the benefit of of seeing you spaced out. When you're so close to the painting, right? We use that analogy a lot. You don't often see these challenges or these changes happening, especially negative ones. We have this, our body and minds have this amazing ability to adapt to even the worst circumstances. And Mm -hmm. while it's great for survival, it can be very negative for thriving after that because of the the lasting effects. And this kind of like relates to, he he sort of mentioned almost like alluding to an added layer of trauma to what it is to be a professional athlete, which I had also never really considered before. Mm -hmm. I mean, he even mentions like, his arms and wrists are littered with scars from pesky guards trying to steal the ball, uh, from him and then drawing blood. Um, the psychological mind games of competition that he had to go through for years and years and years. And he mentioned, quote, if mental health issues that arise after retirement are the symptom, it's the rigors of competition that are the cause. And he even references, I mean, I gotta give him a bonus point. Anytime someone references Shawshank, um, gotta, I think it. I actually referenced it in the last episode. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. So it's, he mentions Morgan Freeman's character is so, being so acclimated to prison life that when he's released, being on the outside just doesn't feel normal. I love that comparison. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a horrible comparison, but, like, I love it in terms of the accuracy. Because it right. really captures, like, just the trauma that, that maybe an athlete has to go through for all these years of competition. And to have that the rug pulled out, it's like, where am I? It's like you just came out of jail after 30 years. Culture is different. All that kind of stuff. Yep. And you've thing.
1: lost he – speaks, he speaks about this a lot. Like, your support system – he talks about it in two different ways, which I appreciated. Like one is that you lose that, right? Yep. Like you lose the, the trainers, the mm-hmm. coaches, the access to team, the access to connection. You lose a lot of that when you're out. And he also talks about it, which I really appreciated that he he says that it oftentimes it asks a sort of like a mask. Yeah. Like it, it sort of masks mental health issues that someone might be going through because they're the support. And this is definitely something if you've ever been injured as an athlete, you probably can relate to, um, that when you don't have your sport anymore... All that stuff that the that the sport was probably helping to support Mm -hmm. or to either distract you from or or not address or mask, right, comes to the surface, and I think that that's a really great point. And so it's it it draws the question of: Are we supporting athletes the way that they need to be supported, right? And are we actually giving them what they what they need? And Based on this article and lots of other reporting from other athletes as well, the answer is no. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of things that we can be doing to to help shift that for
0: athletes, especially. For sure, and I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because that he does mention how that support support system is key, but not enough. Like you, you, you need some some professional help with people that understand how to work around these areas, and you need to be proactive. Right, and this gets into this this subject of like you know how being proactive with mental health, being proactive with mindfulness is so key. And yet, rarely does it happen, right? And he actually draws parallels in terms of, like, um, you know, the American healthcare system really not encouraging preventative medicine. And we've talked about that. The mental health space is no different. It's very hard to sell people on prevention. They often just wait until problems are, are clear-cut and have been forming for lots of time, mm-hmm. right? We talked about how slow these problems develop and how it's hard to see them coming mm-hmm. from a mile away, even though they've been gradually forming all along. Right? The healthcare system is very much like that, where it's just, like, it's all about, react after things have gotten way past the point where you should have been like intervening. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how, uh, I think he mentions Jason Gant, uh, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, a sports mindfulness coach, yep. believing that athletes rarely take measures t- to improve their own mental health. And at times he says, preventative mental health is seen as a joke. Uh, many top top athletes have an, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. So this is an, uh, I'm fascinated by this topic and I don't know the solution. And so I don't expect you to, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts because you've worked with so many athletes on like, how do you get an athlete? I mean, I can draw parallels to our work with young guys where, like, young guys come in, think they know everything, and when they're entitled,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I've often told parents entitlement is much harder. It's probably the hardest issue I see in terms of turning it around. Harder than depression, harder than anxiety, harder than substance. It is, it is entitlement because the level of denial and just not seeing what's actually there is so blatant that they cannot the the distance from where they are to where you need them to be is so far yep. and there's such a massive wall between that it's very hard to get changes because they are seeing a whole different set of variables than what is really happening right that's what entitlement does and it almost seems like this is the athlete version of that when they are so used to being at the top of their game and being great at sports and having and getting paid a ton of money mm-hmm. it leads to them really not being able to see the like or being completely far away from being able to and being able to consider, like, you might not have this in three years. And when you don't, what's that going to look like? Right. I think this is almost like athlete version of entitlement. It's just like they can't grasp. Someone comes to them as like, hey, in four years, you, you're, you might be out of the league and struggling. They'll be like, yeah, I'm not even going to entertain that idea. I actually think, like, entertaining that idea to them is viewed as weakness probably. Mm-hmm. And so they refuse. They'll just laugh it off. He even says stories about that. How do we handle that? Like, how do you get through an athlete or person that's that far away from you?
1: Yeah, so I think a few things. Um, I think that's definitely still seen as a joke for a lot of times. I think some of the stuff that initially helps is that some of the most successful both coaches and players utilize these skills. So I kind of use humor when I'm getting up yeah. against that. Of just like, okay, so Tom Brady does this. Brad Marchand does this. Kobe Bryant did this. LeBron does this. So like, okay, great. You, you don't want to. So why are you better than them? Right. And that it's usually thing breaks yeah, yeah, it up yeah. a little bit of them being like, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, you get kind of <laughs> get back and forth because like, the answer is you're not, or yeah, else you'd yeah. be in the NBA or the, or playing professional. So, I think that's one, that's one way that I can sort of draw that is sort of to generalize it Mm -hmm. of like, this is no longer, and I've said this quote before, but I think it rings so true. Sarah Lazar, who's a a neuroscientist out of Harvard, used this quote in one of her research articles that says, you know, mindfulness work is no longer a nice to have, it's a must have. And I couldn't agree with her more. And I think one thing that happens when we introduce mindfulness I think I could go on this for a long, long period of time um, that I think that the trendiness of mindfulness has an unintended consequences has. It's like, it's like, oh, it's trendy to be mindful. It's a detriment. I think it's sort of like people dismiss it. it, Right. And I think also it, it because of the trendiness of it, I think that while the intention for teams to incorporate it is beneficial, it feels like it's just like a checkbox because they're like supposed to do it. Mindfulness is not about like just some, it's it's a state of mind. It's a state of being, right? It's not something that's just like, okay, we, we did it, let's do it. It's mm-hmm. Mindfulness is all about like, this is something that's mm-hmm. like something that you're incorporating in everything that you do, not just like, okay, we did yoga for 20 minutes, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason. I think for athletes who are already pretty hyper-scheduled, and do a lot of different things to be added of like, okay, now are and I think he talks about like the 5 a.m. yoga where they basically just like slept and he he like got excused because he was laughing at it or something like that. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's probably a pretty common yep. thing from you know I think again the intention for coaches is to like let's let's bring this to our athlete. I think the way that it's rolled out is is incorrect and in it being like we're gonna do mindfulness. Now, Mm -hmm. it's like it needs to be explained of like this is a state of mind and a perspective. We want you to try to adopt and incorporate into everything that you do, not just like for 20 minutes a day. That might be what the practice looks Mm -hmm. like, but the overall goal would be everything. So that's one thing that I need that I feel like would need to be shifted. And in terms of like the buy in, I definitely think there's more to be done. I think people are trying to shift that a lot. Um, My approach is, you know, humor. And like I said, drawing on exam work to that work uh phil jackson lakers brought on um the guru first mumford Mumford, yeah yeah, george mumford who came and did a lot of work and that's why he got that's why phil got his nickname the the zen master Mm -hmm. was because he brought Mm -hmm. george on to do the work yeah and all the guys that worked with him would attribute a lot of their success to like that style of work um so again it's like why are you Why are you better than Jordan or Kobe or Shaq or any of these guys that do this? What is it about you that makes it better that you don't need to do this? And I think once you get that, once you have that calling out that, whether it's entitlement, I do see that a lot of like, I'm good. I can, I don't need this Mm -hmm. or whatever. I don't see the need for it right now. Pushing like pushing it down a little bit is a good approach. But I think with athletes, it's dangerous because... They're so focused on like what's happening right now mm-hmm. that they don't even allow themselves to think about what could happen totally. in a different way. Because totally. for them, I think, A, I think it's seen as weakness. And yep. two, I think it's so terrifying for them to entertain the idea that there is a life outside of this mm-hmm. that they won't even go there. Yeah. And so while it's sort of one of these dances you have to do of like let's – entertain the idea of what retirement looks like right the average range of like professional sports like time frame that people have to play professional sports is not a 30 career mm-hmm. it's not at, at football I think it's like what five to seven years I yeah. think it's cool. in yep. terms of like your long-term life it's not a long that's not a long period of time um, so I think there's a lot of things that go that go into that I think like I said I think drawing on other people that do the work I think I do a lot of – I'm a big brain nerd and so if for I can like show actual pictures of brain development of what changes and what areas of the brain shift and change when you do consistent practice and how those areas of the brain will influence your play in a positive role. There's lots of ways that you can add buy-in and then sort of systematically challenging either the ego – or the entitlement I think is a good way to them for them to buy in. And it usually works pretty well.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that once you disarm them with the – so Kobe does it, did it, uh, and Jordan did it. And like, you know, so what do you think about that? And once you get them there, then I yeah. think it's like, okay, let's just – so you know that you're not too good for it. What do you stand to gain by being in such denial in this idea? And mm-hmm. I, that will help disarm them because it's about, like you said, fear, right? If I open yeah. my mind up to this – it means i'm considering that i'm not perfect or that my career might end and if i consider that i'm not perfect and my career might end i will instantly be less confident and i won't be sharp enough to succeed mm-hmm. and you got to disarm that because well that's they, an issue right yeah, if, is you're an not, issue. if you're not if you're not confident yes. enough
1: to sit with that yes. idea that's a problem right. right and that's an actual hindrance and a barrier to yep. you being able to perform well right now if you so, can't think about that
0: correct so it's like a black and white kind of thing right. with them where it's like how do you how do you acknowledge that that would be a bad thing while also saying that just because you're considering the benefits of mindfulness doesn't mean you have to then be weak in the next game. Mm-hmm. And like likes being able to separate those see the value in both without looking at it in very black and white terms. I think people are tend to look at things in very black and white terms because it's easier to make sense of it. Very sure. binary in terms of the way the human brain works. Um, you also mentioned George Mumford, and I think that that speaks to – I mean, obviously, he's a, a master. With, it speaks to a couple of things. I mean, I think the the buy-in needed from the coaches and the whole organization, it really needs to be authentic right, the mm-hmm. first. And two, you have to have one or, or ideally more, right? You have Phil Jackson and George Mumford. You have to have more than one person capable of eliciting buy-in and being able to navigate the groupthink mentality because amongst guys especially, a lot of it's about fear of embarrassment. Yeah. If I'm the first to admit that I'm buying into what a George Mumford is saying, what are the rest of these guys going to think about me or how are they going to treat me? Right. I think a lot of times if you don't get the right people in place, a lot of athletes are going to fear embarrassment and that fear of embarrassment is... Or losing their edge amongst their peers, it come above yeah. their actual thoughts on the subject. Their thoughts might be like, "No, I, I kind of like what he's saying," but my fear is up here about what happens if I acknowledge that publicly right. in front of these people. Right? Yep,
1: exactly. Um, and one thing that um you 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 touched on before, and that 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 made that reminded me of it. One thing that um Tim Ferriss actually does this. We've talked about this before, and he does an exercise called fear setting. And one thing, and part of that process, basically is sort of like put all your fears down and talked about how you can prepare for them and talk about how to react if they happen. It's a really sort of like a systematic way of addressing fears in a sort of a safer way. And one part of that exercise that I real that I use a lot, so I might not necessarily go through the full Like fear-setting exercise, but one thing that I almost always do is like, what's the he calls it the cost of inaction, and I usually will do this pretty consistently. So, okay, you're telling me you don't need this. Let's talk about two years from now. What does it look like if you don't address these things that are clearly plaguing Mm -hmm. you? What happens three years from now? Four years now? Five? You know what? What happens if you think? Yeah. And if you get people to like unlock that way of how not addressing these things now could potentially lead to things later on where you're going to end up having to come back in here anyway and do the work. Yep. Why not get a handle on it now yeah. and build skills now when you are in a yeah. better mindset versus trying to work through some things when you're feeling low and down? Yep. It's really, really difficult to do that. And it's really... And for people who... who suffer from depression and suffer from anxiety you ask them like if you're in that type of headspace and someone's trying to help process with you and walk you through different things it's almost impossible yeah. you want to be i mean the best work comes from when you're feeling a little bit when you're feeling pretty it's good way easier and yeah. you can like actually engage in the work rather than like have to work through the feelings and emotions that are hindering you from mm-hmm. even getting to that point yeah. which is why preventative work is always the best approach and it but it is it's a lot of it is like especially with guys of like the don't bro you know not broke don't fix it or like I don't need the help because yeah. I'm strong enough. Yep. It's like this, all this bullshit that we yeah. have to sift through that just is all it's doing is just, it's, it's increasing here, uh, your weakness, right? Yeah. It's just contributing to that. Well, it's, it's totally means, ego,
0: like you mentioned it's earlier. It's all ego. It's all ego. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm above this, yes. right? I don't I'm don't above need this. this. Yep. I don't need it. Yep. 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 Yeah. It's a false sense of security. Like I have to. I have to lie to myself and be in <laughs> denial and tell myself I don't right. need this yep. to maintain the charade that I'm perfect, that I'm powerful or whatever. Yep. And in reality, the, the, we've talked about this so many times, right? The other form of strength, the healthier, uh, more intelligent form of strength, in my opinion, is to show the vulnerability needed to admit like, oh, sh- I'm no different than Jordan or Kobe. Like yeah. I, I need that too. I'm, right. If I don't now, I'm going to, so I might as well start, right? Yep. I agree with you. I think preventative work is so much easier to see success with, so much harder to get the first step. That's where it's, it's difficult. But I think um you get the right people involved, we're able to get people all over that first hurdle. I agree. Um, so that's the end for today. We're going to put some links, obviously, to the to the uh, Rob Benson article in the show notes. We'll also add maybe some links to George Mumford you know, books and also the Tim The Mindful Piers.
1: Athletes, the book he wrote. The highly <laughs> highly recommend it Great book.
0: Great, great book. And then we'll also add links to to like the tim ferris peer setting thing so people can see that because i definitely agree that's a great thing for anyone to use um we use that all the time in our work yeah so i want to thank everyone for listening to the grim drive podcast for this discussion about identity and profession We'll be back next week with a new episode thanks everyone